everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELAC A25. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM, 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. Should I even ask, Jeff? I mean, football's you back. Might as, this, is, this is your first, this is opening week. I know you've asked me about preseason, but this is really the first week that matters, so Go ahead and answer. ask the question. I'll answer it, and we can go from there. Football is back. This is an exciting time. Great game last night. I could have used some of those drops from Kansas City in the Super Bowl last year as opposed to the opening game of the season last night. Uh, I, I did text you to let you know that Chad Henney, a Michigan man, a reason for yep. you to watch Thursday Night Football was banging the drum to start the game, and you were not watching how are you so so let me get this straight because because i was confused last night and i remain confused until we went we go on air which is you think that after all these years of me resisting thursday night football unless my team is on it even then it's it's a struggle that i'm going to turn on the game because a michigan quarterback from 20 years ago is banging a drum not playing in the game banging a drum you do a lot of things for michigan you know what? There's <laughs> there's where I draw the line. I, I am so not watching found, anything. We found the limit of where it is for Jeff Cohen. I'm glad is, that we it, can start the show on this high note. I mean, is, is the next thing you're going to ask me is whether or not Glenn Rice or Glenn Robinson or Nick Stauskas or any Michigan basketball player rings the bell for mission for no. the Sixers, whether that will be the reason I turn it on? No, that's too much Michigan for it's, me. I it's can't, not happening. I can't do but, that. But, but, I, but I will tell you that if somebody would have told me that the, the first game of the year, the reigning Super Bowl champions would lose to, and I don't care how good or not they are, the Detroit Lions, I would have told you you were crazy. Because they're the Detroit Lions. The Detroit Lions have won nothing ever. Now they, it, they're just the most woeful franchise of my lifetime. But they went into Green Bay and knocked them off last year in the playoffs. They played mm-hmm. well at the end of the season. They have a good roster. I think Fine. they're actually going to be good this season. They I, will, but they're the Detroit Lions. They, remember, Kansas City didn't have Travis Kelsey, didn't have Chris Jones, who, look, if that was here and my star player is sitting up in a suite, because he wants to watch the Super Bowl ceremony, but not on the field because he's in a contract dispute. I don't know how that would go over here with the Philadelphia fan base. How do you think they'd react to that, Jeff? Not well. Yeah. Uh, and, and nor should they. I mean, look, you have a contract. I, I don't really, you know, people want to sit there and say, well, it's one-sided or it's billionaires versus millionaires, whatever it is. You have a contract. You have a set of rules that you have to play by because your union chose to do certain, certain things. He has a contract. Show up and play. If he wants a bigger contract, then he can show up and play and, and play himself into a bigger contract. But he agreed at some point to read the English on the black and white pieces of paper and then take his pen and sign it. And now his teammates, this is a team sport, are in, depending on him being there and they lose by one point. Are you going to tell me that Jared Goff and the Detroit Lions would have beat the Chiefs? If Chris Jones was not was on that defensive line, they wouldn't have. He he literally, you know, oftentimes you don't know. I'm pretty certain that the reason the Chiefs lost the game, besides the fact that Kelsey didn't play, and Kadarius Tony gave the and ball. Kadarius Tony <laughs> made every Giants fan happy yesterday. Did he validate every thought you ever had as a Giants from fan? every drop low light that I saw? He this is exactly you know. 
it's funny for Giants fans. You sit there and and people wonder. By the way, especially Eagles Kedarius fans don't care how Giants fans feel. But for you, just tell us how you feel. It, it doesn't matter. <laughs> this could apply to an Eagle. If a player gets traded who was a who was a first round draft pick, and everybody's confused as why he never got on the field during that time, he gets traded to the Super Bowl champions, gets himself a ring, and makes a couple nice plays. You sit there and go. Well, it must have been the administration. Somebody must have not seen something. And this guy comes out in the first game, and, and he had at least four drops, including a crucial one at the end of the game. Yeah, it was a tough night for him. You know, we, we mentioned, all right, so Casey goes down in the first game. We'll get to the Eagles in a minute. Um, we mentioned Chris Jones holding out for a contract. Uh, Joe Burrow got paid. Okay, but no, no. Before we go off the game that I didn't watch, because I did see enough of the highlights oh, okay. to comment on them. Okay, the Lions won, but from what I can tell, they did everything in their power from a coaching perspective to lose. Don't they always do that? Did did they not go for it on fourth down on their own eighteen early in the game? Yeah, they they, they why that, well but... with, with Patrick Mahomes, the best player on the planet, and, and then at the end of the game, they tried to run out the clock on a fourth down with two and a half minutes left at the 50-yard line? You know, for somebody... With Patrick who, Mahomes on the other side For of the somebody field? who doesn't watch Thursday Night Football, I am very impressed with your Thursday Night Football knowledge. Well, thank you very much. The NFL appreciates you watching the highlights and contributing to the clicks of, <laughs> of everything that happened, <laughs> Mr. ESPN, I don't watch Thursday I, Night Football. I can honestly say that I didn't have it on for one second, but I have ESPN so I could watch in the morning. So... I, I just don't get what they thought. That, yes, they won. So I guess I shouldn't question it. But everybody knows not to give Patrick Mahomes the ball back at the end of a game. Giving him over two minutes at the 50-yard line doesn't seem like a wise move. Yeah, it was, uh, it was an uneven game. It worked, but it was an uneven it doesn't seem like game, a wise move. But I, I thought Detroit would be better going into the season. They, they were not afraid. And, and a lot of times teams go into Kansas City, and it's the mystique of Kansas City that kind of intimidates them. There was no step back from them at all. Right. Well, I think we should hold, this is just my own personal belief, we should hold off on a little more NFL talk because we're going to have someone on to talk about quarterbacks. Yeah. Don't, I say we talk a little college right now. All right. We're going to have John Eisenberg on after the break in about mm, 25 minutes to, to talk a little more football with uh, the modern quarterback, uh, Rocket Man, the black quarterback who revolutionized pro football. You know, you, you say you want to talk college football. So the NFL returning last night means there's live NH, NFL or college football games in 79 of the next 89 days through December 4th, including 50 straight days from October 3rd to November 22nd. That makes a sports fan who's a nut like me happy. Uh, well, and if you count the British version of football, then it's like every night. Every night. You get, uh, right there to add those stats in, Jeff. Uh, you're, it's funny. You have an interesting look at college football this year because your son is in the middle of it. So you were not. Well, not really. He's, he's a student. In, in the middle of it would be playing. In, uh, so I guess if, if people were to have asked you who have been on planet Earth for their whole lives, the chances of one in eleven Colorado going into the the, na the national championship finalists' home and beating them, and on this very same week, the Detroit Lions going to the Super Bowl champion and Clemson losing Chiefs, to Duke, Don't and Clemson Sabo. losing to Duke, you would say that you must have entered into an alternate universe. 
it was but, but that's different. that that's been the week of football for college football it's been it's been crazy now yes the everybody wants to talk about Deion sanders and the university of colorado buffaloes it all goes away by the way if they lose this weekend yes like like this this is the most important game probably in colorado football in at least the last two decades they've now gotten themselves ranked after being if not the worst the second worst team in division one football last year and all because Deion rand sanders came in and basically sent away all the players and brought in a whole new team including his son who set a school record yeah but the the one son is, is a quarterback who had 510 yards passing and they have a guy on their team travis, travis hunter, hunter who you know it's funny I was I was texting with with somebody uh, in the NFL who's who's well connected, and I said, you know, Travis Hunter just played basically every play other than special teams. I think he played 129 plays, and he didn't just play them; he had the integral interception on defense, and he had more than I think he had a dozen receptions in like a hundred plus degree heat in Texas. Exactly, <laughs> and, and like you're and, not talking about playing in 60, 70 degree weather. And I, you know, he's now right now, at least for one game is the Shohei Otani of, of college football. We, we have never, I don't think ever seen this, especially in our lifetime. I've seen well, back in Charles the day, Woodson. you had guys that played both ways, but not in the modern yes. era of college football that we have right. now with the athleticism that we have now. I mean, I, I, I got, I was lucky enough to see Charles Woodson, but he wasn't doing what Travis Hunter did in that game. And, and so you, you have that. I just don't know how somebody like that can hold up. And that was what I was told. There's no way he's making it through the season if he's playing 120 plus plays every day. It's just not physically. Your body will break down. But if they don't now beat their biggest rival in Nebraska this week, then it's all for naught. But tell me what your son's going through as a student on campus this week. There, I mean, it's it, I love college atmospheres when a camp when a campus is winning. It's like just the excitement is unbelievable. And, and you've got your son right in the middle of it. it. Well, I mean, I'm spoiled. You you probably haven't observed it that much as a Rutgers grad. But th- this is this is what Always every week shot. is like on a Michigan campus or an Alabama campus or Clemson campus until the last couple of years. Uh-huh. <laughs> Always um, a shot, too. <laughs> or Notre Dame or something. Those schools are used to this buildup. They're to me, the fun wasn't just the game. It's all the hype and the buildup every week, anticipating, you know, what's coming. You, on a campus like Colorado, they've been bad for so long. I mean, it's just been a disaster year after year, culminating in what was at the end of last season, that now you have this guy coming in who already is a hype machine and then and bragging and going, there's no way he can back this up by going to TCU and playing on the road. And, and if you watch that game, it was all offense. There's, they have no defense. There was no defense <laughs> like, in that game. Defense it, it, was but it was it made a incredible fun game, to watch. It was a I very mean, fun game. It was fun. And, and, and so that's what he's brought there. And if they beat Nebraska, there'll be a top 15 team. And all of a sudden, those games are going to matter, and and that campus will be excited. And that's the great thing about college football is, is college football to me is different. Will always be different than than pro football. 
yes, pro football fans in certain cities are through the roof, crazy, you know, adamant fans. College football, there's something more that you have invested because you went to college there. You got your degree from there. It's where you became an adult. And, and so it has an emotional tie that you can't have as a pro football fan. Unfortunately, the NCAA is doing everything in its power to, to destroy the beauty of, of college football. Did you see Mac Jones or Mac Brown just like take a blowtorch to the NCAA? <laughs> Well, well, okay. So tell me what, tell everybody what Mac Brown's at. So North Carolina, they have a player who's been loyal to the university. I think he had an injury history and they applied for a, a waiver for him to be allowed to play. And, um, it was denied <laughs> and his, his comment, I don't know. I've ever been more disappointed in a person, group or people and institution than the NCAA. It's clear. It couldn't care less about the young people. It's supposed to be supporting. I've lost all faith. Then he goes on. He says, We've got complete rosters overhauled through transfer portals. Players playing in their eighth year of college at their fourth school, yet Tez Walker, that's the player's name, who only played football at one school, isn't eligible. It makes no sense and never will. Shame on you, NCAA. Shame on you. At what point do colleges say the NCAA is not only irrelevant, they say, we're just not following your rules. Well, there's no, there's nothing them. requiring them. They can all just say, we're not part of the NCAA anymore if they want to. Why, why don't they do that? Because the NCAA does nothing right. Literally. There's no set of rules that's consistent. There's nothing that they do that's right. And as you say, you now have coaches. Mac Brown is not the first coach this week to take a blowtorch to the NCAA. Jim Harbaugh, who himself got himself in trouble because he doesn't respect the NCAA enough to apparently tell the truth to them and turns a minor violation, which was ridiculous, into a major violation because he won't talk to them. At least that's their story. Kids doing said, said last week that he's on the side of the players and that there should be revenue share. Like these coaches aren't just saying, I've got my student athletes backs. They're saying, we're going to help tear it down. We're going we're gonna to take the NCAA down piece by piece, by comment by comment, because all of these comments, excuse me, is how we got our, ourselves in this situation. It is. And, you know, when you look at it, we've, we've talked about the impact that NIL has had. You look at the, the conference realignment, even in the last week, you know, we, we joke at how quickly it changes. But in the last week now, you have Stanford, Cal, and SMU headed to the ACC. Army looks like it's going to replace SMU in the AAC. You've got the Mountain West thinking of buying or getting the intellectual property of the Pac-12 to have their branding. You can talk more about that to bring Oregon State and Washington State in with them. I mean, and, and it, the backdrop of this is it is literally all about the dollars, while you have the players not getting paid. And so okay. that grows louder. So here's my question about all of the things you just said. The dumbest one that I heard in that whole group of sentences you just put together. Army? No. Oh, which one? The Atlantic Coast Conference brought in two teams from California and SMU. Is be in Texas. The only thing, I, and I've struggled with this, is the only reason is because they're in Texas? Yes. Because... What possible reason could any conference have to bring in SMU? You don't need to ask that. Why else did the Big Ten bring in Rutgers? Because they wanted the New York market. 
That's all that these people care about right now is market share. How much the agreement, the Texas market does the, the Atlantic Coast Conference get through SMU? SMU's agreement is they will not take any of the revenue from the media deal for nine years. Do you know how they're making up that money? How? Boosters are coming up with $30 million to pay them uh, what would be the 3 to $4 million a year that they're foregoing to move to the conference to be able to be a part of the Atlantic Coast Conference. <laughs> Anybody, if you've never watched the, the 30 for 30 on SMU, just watch. Oh, it's so good. It, 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 to me, it is... Of all the 30 for 30s, the best one ever. But it okay, is, it is, tell it me is the difference now. Exactly what was wrong with college sports for so long that they now legalized. I was going to say. And now you're telling me that SMU is so disrespected in the conference that they got brought into that they're saying, we'll let you come play, but you're not allowed to use our ball. Yes. That was and literally why they did not want them in there because they didn't want them to take a couple of million dollars or whatever the breakdown is that each of those teams would have gotten if they're sharing the revenue with another person. But when they go to renegotiate the deal, having the Texas market and hopefully SMU playing better because they're in the conference will make them more valuable for a media rights deal. And that's all any of these conferences are chasing at this point. So you talk about what's the NCAA going to do. They seem to be kind of irrelevant. It's what are the conferences going to do? Because they're who's driving the bus. But they're not. Everybody's reacting now. No, they all want to think that they're clever and the next person and they're being proactive. They're not. They're all reacting to what they think is going to happen, which is there's no rules. So you're telling me that SMU, picture you are 12 years old and they are picking your kickball team and they say to you, I was always you're the last ass. kid. We're going to pick you because we have to have a minimum number of people on our roster. But by the way, don't show up. We, we're not putting you in the game. No, no, that's, show that's up. That's literally what the Atlantic Coast Conference Sh show said. Show up. SMU. We just show up. We just won't give you a jersey or a shirt. <laughs> like they want them there. They want them to play and participate. They just don't want them to get the spoils of celebrating oh, the win. That, that, it's like even worse than what you're saying. There, it, it's, it'd be one thing to invite them and then say, don't show up. They're saying, show up, play the game, help us win. And then don't celebrate at all. So I have one more question about the Atlantic Coast Conference. As a result of having those three schools join, do they have an even number of schools with Notre Dame or without Notre Dame? I'll have to go look at that. Because if it's an even number of schools with Notre Dame, how much more hypocrisy do we need from Notre Dame? That they are in a conference well, where all of their other teams are in the conference, but for football, they're not technically in the conference so they can keep their own DV TV. Deal. Exactly. Again, it all goes. I know you hate when I like, I am very interested in advertising on television and media rights deal. It makes your eyes roll over. I get it. I totally understand. But that is what is driving all of this. They will have 18 members with 17 playing full-time in the league in 2024-2025. Does that include Notre Dame or not include Notre Dame? I'm looking to try and find out. But that's where the numbers will be. I'm guessing it's with Notre Dame, who is technically not a member when it comes to the, the, the revenue-driving sport of football. It, it just... <sighs>
it's 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 sheer stupidity. There's no other word for anything that's going on, but it's happening because there is no governing body that is actually governing. They are not. There's no consistent application of any rule. It, the the fact Mac Brown's like I don't like Mac Brown, but Mac Brown is right that there are kids that are playing six, seven, eight years, going to four different schools, shopping themselves around. But the fact is, there were people who saw this coming. There were people that were not that were in respected positions of power that said, "This is the train wreck that we're about to unleash upon ourselves." And for some reason, nobody had the foresight to say, "Hey, let's come up with a set of rules, get everybody to agree to apply them to consistently, and have a governing body that governs them." We had on Ward Manual what four years ago, when the portal was opening, and he said, "This is my concern. Kids are going to start shopping around. They're not going to want to compete for jobs. They're just going to want to move from school to school." That's what's happening now. If a kid can't play because he was injured and somebody else got his job and, and he's only got a year left, I get all those things. I don't get. This and by the way, I am not sanctioning. I don't care where my kid goes to school. I'm not sitting there sanctioning what Deion Sanders is doing because it wasn't right, but it was okay under these ridiculous rules. Where does it go next? Like there, there's you're gonna have where, wherever one school wants to take it, and the other schools are too fearful not to do it. That's the problem. It, it's it's let's see how many rules weren't technically not breaking that we can get away with i don't think the realignment is done by the way florida state already isn't happy with the acc they've talked about potentially leaving notre dame going where to the sec i don't know who wants them at this point i, I well, guess that's it i mean you can threaten all you want okay so florida state leaves the acc and goes to the sec you think that's going to get them more money no well the sec not. has a bigger media rights deal than the acc so yes it will and in terms of that you're assuming they would give them a full share see the thing about negotiating is you're supposed to negotiate from positions of strength and florida no, state whining that they us, want sir. out of it doesn't really work because the sec could go okay florida state where else are you going to go you're, wow. you're not the big 10 does not want florida state well, I don't care how far the Big Ten's reach needs to go. They'll take the University of Seville in Spain before they're going to take Florida State. <laughs> well, I will be ready to watch the big time matchup of uh, Rutgers Temple on Saturday. <laughs> Huge. <laughs> what, what, uh, what, wait, I, which can I ask you a question? channel is that on? Can I ask you a question, by the way? Uh, we haven't talked about this. You mentioned Jim Harbaugh. What the heck are the players doing with their Harbaugh shirts and the formation before the game? Just take the damn penalty and shut up. You know, it's funny. I texted several of my, my fellow alumni about how, and I don't know if you saw the play that was dedicated to Harbaugh. Yes. So they literally came out in their the first offensive series and lined back. up 11 behind each other and then <sighs> spread out and all put up the number four, which was Harbaugh's jersey number when he was at Michigan. Yes. It, it's stupid. It's embarrassing. <laughs> but I sit there and go, okay, if it want, if that's what they need to do to bond with each other, go ahead and do it. And, and I don't really way, care. I'm, but that's the point. I'm not the, the stick NCAA to sports is such guy. a joke now that everybody's like flipping the middle finger at them. I'm not the shut up and stick to sports guy. But mm -hmm. like he took the punishment. So just play the game. You'll get him back. 
I, no, I he know. didn't take the punishment. That's the thing. Well, the university gave him the punishment. The university anyway. said, okay, NCAA, since you told us what a punishment was going to be, then you decided it wasn't good enough. You know what? We're going to self-sanction ourselves, and we'll let Harbaugh sit at home. He literally was at home with the offensive coordinator. I, I know, though, that you did not. We've done this show long enough that I think you did not like what you saw there. Even though you don't agree with the NCAA and the penalty, I don't know that you like which, the Which players. part? What the players did. Uh, no, so, I don't. I told yeah. you. I texted people saying this was stupid. Yeah. I, I said something. Uh, Sarah and I were watching something, and I was like, oh, Jeff's not going to like that. Like, no, I, she's I, like, why do you even think about I'm, that? I, I'm not going out and buying a... You, you know I have lots of Michigan merchandise. Yeah. None of it's going to say free Harbaugh. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> All right, so I should take that shirt off your holiday list. Yes. <laughs> don't don't get that. I already didn't if get that, you Twizzlers. If that was I, going on, I'm still waiting for my Logan O'Hoppy jersey. I, no, no, no. I offered to get you a Logan O'Hoppy jersey. You didn't we want couldn't the particular get one. Remember, jersey. they didn't have it in the in the funky. Um, well, it's the, not the my fault. Jersey. You're tall and stuff. Like I, they had one for short people like me that we could have gotten. I still oh, haven't gotten you an yeah, O'Hoppy jersey. Get the kids I didn't get you Twizzlers when I went out to Hershey, and I likely yeah. won't get you a free Harbaugh shirt either. <laughs> uh, let's let's take a couple minutes before we hit the break and and continue the football conversation. Uh, we're in September. I got to ask you, baseball, what's your confidence level on the Phillies? We did a, a big baseball show last week with talking to some catchers. Um, how do you feel about this team as they head into the fall at 77 and 62? What? How, did the, uh, how, how do you feel about the Phillies? I love when I stump you on basic things. Yeah. How do you feel about the Phillies at 77 and 62? And the same. Like, you ask me this question all the time. Because I need think a all temperature of a sudden take. I was going to run into the studio and say, I, we've got this? That wasn't going to happen. Do you I mean, feel the, any There are so many holes in their game. And again, I can't tell you how many texts I've had with people, including you, every time <laughs> Schwarber hits a home run leading off, and I go, I don't get it. He has 41 home runs and 41 singles. He's the leadoff hitter. He's batting, what is he up to now, 182? Uh, like, 184, Jeff. Oh, oh, oh no, 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 no. Sorry, I, I, 195 he's yeah. up to. What? He's up to 195. Oh, okay. Well, that's still not 200, and I, and I wouldn't exactly be having a parade at 200. He, the he's, problem is, he's got, that, that, he's, you know, what scares me is that that the re the reason that Harper was not playing first base every day is a back issue that that goes back three years. Yeah, I didn't know how long that went back. Now he seems to be saying he's willing to stay at first base. All I then why know isn't is then why isn't he? Well, in the he they have been playing him because of the back issue, but he was saying long term, like rather than going back to the outfield, he would he would be a first baseman. Well, but if it's worse for his back that he can't do the stretching at first base, then the best thing for him to do is go back to the outfield and oh well, if he catches a ball and can't throw it to home as a rope, I'll take that. I mean, again, him being in out, I'll take him in outfield with one arm over Kyle Schwarber with two. <laughs> Kyle Schwarber needs to not be in the outfield. I don't understand, by the way, why is Johan Rojas like third man down the bench behind Christian Pache? Like, I, I, again, I, I don't really understand Thompson. Look, he, he, he got them to the World Series last year. I give him credit for that. But everybody sees that the entire defense is better with Rojas in center field. It doesn't matter. He's the guy. He's going to bat ninth, and he was batting close to 300. Who cares if he's got power? He's the ninth hitter on your team. And he can cover the entire outfield and make everybody look better. 
he makes the infielders look better because of his communication and how he can get to the balls in, sh- in short outfield. Why is he not in every game? I don't care that Christian Pache is on this team or not on this team. I care that Johan Rojas makes everybody better, and I guarantee you he gives the pitchers more confidence to throw their pitches. And it seems like you're being outvoted by the manager. I just I've Well, I don't have a vote. He does. <laughs> if I had a vote, I, I guarantee you, if you took a vote of, of the people in Philadelphia, most people would agree with me, and that's not on most subjects. But Rojas in center field <laughs> makes total sense. Schwarber not batting first makes perfect sense. You cannot tell me that his 41 home runs are worth having him as a leadoff hitter. He also, if he can't hit 41 home runs in the in the fourth position, then what does that say about him? But does it work for this lineup? Like he's got 177 strikeouts, 111 mm-hmm. walks to go with those 41 home runs and 41 singles. So do you do you know Schwarber is close if he hasn't passed it to having as many strikeouts in this one season as Tony Gwynn had in an entire decade? Amazing. It's just unbelievable. But is that the old school baseball guy in you saying like this doesn't work when it may work for their lineup? I I honestly don't know. I'm used to a more traditional leadoff hitter who, you know, works the count and tries to get on base. And like, that's what I'm used to and Mm -hmm. and and turns the lineup over and, and like sets the table. And that's not what Kyle Schwarber is. Is it just that you're an old school seam head that can't accept the change, or is that Schwarber really isn't a good leadoff hitter? What is it? He's, just, he's not a good. I mean, look, in this case, I'm right. He's not a good <laughs> leadoff hitter, and he's not a good outfielder. He may be the worst outfielder in the major leagues. They they do start a series this weekend tonight against Miami. Uh, they will miss Sandy Alcantara, who goes on the IL. Uh, they are five games up in the wild card, about a game, game and a half up on the Cubs. So they're in the place they'd want to be. They they have two series against the Mets coming up. So, I mean, that's kind of the opponents you'd like. I, I am slightly concerned about the bullpen leaking oil. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean... they Just a smidge? It, it's painful watching. Okay, so you, you asked me a confidence question. You answered the question yourself. I mean, you cannot... Well, you, uh, we're you doing a show together. So we're, person in this room. We're, we're doing a show together, so I can't ask and answer the questions. That wouldn't really be nice. Well, so, I, I, just, I just allowed you, you to answer the question by, by giving you the answer, which is you're always less confident I was gonna say, than I am. There's no I, way that you're confident about it. No, I'm, I'm very concerned. It's funny. I, I was talking to somebody the other day about how you gave me a hard time last season complaining about the Eagles' special teams because the Eagles' record was so good. And it... You know, it just the the same things, the the leaving runners in scoring position, the the inconsistency in the bullpen. Those are things that come back to bite you. You can get to a regular season walking 11 percent of the hitters that you face if you're a reliever and still survive. That's the fifth highest in baseball. But in the playoffs, those walks become runs in tight games. You can't outslug somebody all the time. Nine, seven, because your bullpen's blown the lead three times. Can I ask you a question? Are you going to have any confidence at all anytime Craig Kimball comes into the game in a high leverage situation? He is rapidly approaching his career high innings marks. He is at 59. That's not what I'm worried about. I'm worried about that he he's so stubborn that he won't change his delivery so that he gets the ball off in time for the time clock. And I, and I think that he's still tipping whatever pitches he's tipping, and he thinks it's a joke. 
I, I am definitely the bull, the bullpen concerns me. There is no good way to say it. And I guess every team in baseball, every team in all sports is flawed, but the flaws just seem glaring with this team. And the question is, can they stay hot enough to out hit them? That's- Last question for you on the Phillies. Was it a mistake to let Michael Lorenzen pitch that entire no hitter? Uh, I, like I texted now. you it during the game. It looks like it now. He hasn't been the same since. And at this point, they'd probably do better off just moving him into the bullpen the way that he's pitched. You know, the way yep. Wheeler wants to seems to want to be on his five days rest. So, so Sanchez gets the occasional start. But he mm-hmm. has not looked the same since that first outing. And, and maybe those expectations just went too high. But he was pitching well leading up to coming here. And then after Yes, that but outing, he then spent his first two games here pitching the most that he has pitched in any two games in his career. Yeah, it's uh, look, lots of questions. I mean, it looks like right now they're in, they're in shape to, to be in the playoffs, be in the wild card, but definitely lots of questions as we head down to it. Jeff, why don't we hit the break? When we come back, we'll bring on John Eisenberg and talk some football. Sounds good. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. Welcome back from break on the heart of sports. Jeff, let's keep the football talk going. And as the season starts, we're going to talk about how we got here, looking at a new book by John Eisenberg called Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. John, thanks for giving us a little time on the show today. Uh, Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Three years in the making. uh, Why was now the time to tell this story? Well, uh, I think, uh, number one, I, I'm in Baltimore and uh, uh, have written for uh, various media here for many years. And this is where Lamar Jackson landed in 2018. It was really interesting to follow uh, a guy who, you know, coming out of college was told at the Combine, uh, you know, maybe uh, it was a scout for the Chargers that said, you're going to run the 40 because, uh, you know, you sure would make a, a nice wide receiver in the pros. And he winds up barely getting drafted in the first round. And his second year, he's MVP in the league. I mean, it's an arc not unlike Jalen Hurts in Philadelphia. And so uh, you, you just see this uh, going on and on. I mean, I've been, this is my 11th book. Uh, I've been writing sports for over 40 years. Race has been a constant thread, a narrative in my books, in my columns. And so uh, you throw Ad Lamar on top of that, just right in front of me. And I thought, you know, this is a big story. It's a big canvas. But I think it's really interesting that, uh, you know, 100 years into the NFL, uh, 57 years into the Super Bowl era, it took for two black starting quarterbacks. How did how did that happen? How did we get here? And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, there's been enough trouble with uh, getting uh, the accurate history uh, rolled out in uh, today's America, I will say. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, hey, this is something that happened. There were a lot of issues for blacks at the quarterback position for many decades in the NFL. Let's tell that story and uh, and make sure that people understand this did happen. And maybe it's better now 
in some respects, but let's not forget what happened before. So how, you know, you mentioned how did that happen? So the, the obvious question to you is how did it happen? Uh, you know, as, as somebody who watched football in the 70s and saw the evolution uh, of the black quarterback and saw Warren Moon play and saw Doug Williams play, wh- what was it about that era that led to the, the understanding that, that anybody could play quarterback? Well, what happened was a, a, a couple people in the league finally said, I mean, there was a, the, it was baked into the DNA of pro football that uh, you didn't use black quarterbacks. Uh, I mean, there were none. I mean, Marlon Briscoe started five games for the Denver Broncos, uh, not in the NFL, by the way, in the AFL, in 1968. And after that, there was nobody. And so in the real history of the sport, there'd just been nothing. So what it took was a few people saying, I I am not going to buy sort of the myths that existed, many of which were just racist. That's the only way to put it. Uh, You know, that a black quarterback maybe wasn't smart enough uh, to have that position in the pros or he couldn't lead. He didn't have discipline. There was all this stuff. You go back and, uh, you know, some of the young scouts from that era will tell you that's what they heard from the old scouts back in that era. So what it took was a few guys in the league just saying, I'm not buying it. I mean, that's, it, it has to start somewhere. You remember the coach Chuck Knox, okay? Uh, you know, nice coach in the 70s. is known for a lot of other things. Well, in the mid-70s, as coach of the L.A. Rams, he looked at his quarterback group and said, you know, James Harris is the guy I'm going to put on the field. I don't care that he's black. And he put him out there and uh, was in the NFC Championship game twice with James, who's really the first guy to get any sort of chance. And so it took guys like that. It took Joe Gibbs, uh, not as the coach of the Redskins years later, but as the offensive coordinator in Tampa, uh, they, they told him we have the, we, we, we can draft anyone we want. They were really bad in the late seventies and they scouted a few guys. He went down to Grambling, talked to Doug Williams and he came back and he told them, you need to draft this guy. This guy uh, is going to be a winner in this league. He can do the job. Uh, I don't care what all the other stuff is. And so it took guys like that just sort of opening the door. And then it took those players proving that the, that all those myths were wrong. I mean, James Harris, Doug Williams, Randall Cunningham in Philadelphia, you know, proving that, yes, a black quarterback can play and win in the NFL. I'll get to Randall in a little bit. He was one of my favorites. That was like my wheelhouse of growing up with football. But you mentioned James Harris, and he was somebody you got time with, and you, and you write about in the book, and, and, and there was some stuff in there. He had no contract. He was he was in Buffalo at the start, and, and the team gave him a job cleaning his teammates' cleats. This is the guy yeah. that became the starting quarterback for the Rams. There were no black quarterbacks at the time. He was in the AFL before the merger. Can you talk about... You know, you had said that it was sort of understood and and baked in that that they couldn't be quarterback. Can you talk about some of those hurdles? We talked about the people who gave them opportunities, but what were the actual hurdles that they were facing that you found out there? Well, the hurdles, the the hurdles, uh, you know, you really veer off into, uh, you know, a serious discussion, you know, of race in America and what white perception of black was. Uh, and, and, and not always, you know, obviously I, I'm very hesitant to paint with a broad brush here, obviously, because the late sixties is civil rights era and there was an awful lot going on. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of young, uh, African-Americans in particular were pushing back against a lot of this stuff, uh, at that era. And that's a really important part of it, that that's where a lot of the pushback started, but the hurdles were the preconceived notions, 
you know, that so many people had. And, you know, it's sad to say, and, and I've got this in my book with, uh, you know, a couple people uh, that were uh, not in sports. Lori, I mean, it was true in other in other parts of society. I mean, you're talking about black leadership. Uh, you know, would white America give black leadership? That's it was true in the law. It was true in business. There were no CEOs until uh, I believe it was uh, the 80s. Uh, uh, you know, the first Fortune 500 CEO uh, in the military. Uh, you know, the, there was also very, very slow to evolve in that. So the, the hurdle was really the belief in and there's no doubt in the NFL. Uh, it, it is a uh, you know, it's a it's a white power structure. It still is for the most part. And, uh, you know, very slow to say that, you know, to give put a black person in a leadership position. Uh, it was actually in keeping with a lot of other realms of American society. How important was Warren Moon to the development and, and trust in, in black quarterbacks? Warren Moon didn't even start his career in the NFL. He started in the Canadian Football League. Undrafted out of it. He just won the Rose Bowl at the University of Washington, and he did not get drafted. Uh, very typical of that era. A lot of, uh, you know, the draft was not a pretty place for black quarterbacks. So he goes to Canada. He wins five Grey Cups. I mean, he's uh, almost immediately the player that he would become in the NFL and uh, just dominates that league. And he does come to the Houston Oilers in 1984. He is the only black starting quarterback in the NFL. Uh, Doug Williams had spent five years in Tampa at that point and had basically been run out of town, was out of the NFL. He was playing for, in the USFL. And so Warren Moon was it. So I, I don't think you can stress enough what Warren Moon did because he comes back to the NFL, there's a bidding war and he's the highest paid player in the league. Suddenly a black quarterback out of nowhere did. I mean, no one saw that coming. Warren certainly didn't see it coming. And from the get go, the Oilers were not good for a few years, but they gave him a leash and they let him play. And from the get go, he was what he would become, which was very cool in the pocket with a great arm, uh, the ability to evade pressure run, and just a pro's pro, cool in the saddle. And so uh, a great player. And then the Oilers got good. And, and he had an incredible career that lasted into the 2000s. Uh, you know, and he threw for almost 50,000 yards. And he's in the Hall of Fame. He's the only black quarterback in the Hall of Fame. So just for year after year, Warren Moon, just uh, if you were looking at the NFL or the quarterback position from a racial perspective, Warren Moon was like a one-man gang which was, you know, those stereotypes are wrong. All you have to do is look at me because I can play this position in the NFL. I can win. And so, uh, you know, he and, and to this day, he is still sort of uh, carrying the torch. Anything that happens, he is the first guy to step up and speak out about things that, that he didn't think are right. You know, Jeff and I talked earlier in the show about sort of the state of college football, and I'm, I'm curious your thoughts on the role that college football has played in both perpetuating the problem and then changing the NFL now to create opportunities. At first, they weren't really preparing mobile quarterbacks for the NFL style. So you had these very talented black quarterbacks who are not in a pro style offense. Now, all of a sudden, you fast forward, we're in the NFL, and 
the traditional quote pro style offers more mobile quarterbacks. You know, watching the, the game last night, you've got Patrick Mahomes with a run pass option having to decide everything. So it used to be they didn't have the intellect quote to do it. And now the game has moved to they're so well prepared for it because of how they've played coming up. Yeah, that's a key part of the story. It's a really interesting part of the story. Uh, you know, obviously, it's all about race. That part of it is a little bit less about race because it is about the evolution of football in some respects. Uh, And yes, uh, what's really interesting about it is uh, college football influenced the NFL. You would think the NFL, the greatest form of football in the world, they they decide everything, right, about what should be prevailing styles and everything. But no, in this case, they were very slow for years and years, decades. The drop-back passer is all they wanted. The drop-back passer is what won Super Bowls. Everybody wanted that. And if you were mobile, it was actually held against you for the most part. Just a few outliers. They didn't want you running. Uh, You know, the linemen didn't like it. The coaches didn't like it and everything. So it finally started. College football started to change for sure and and bring in more of the run pass option. And, uh, you know, not just the college option that like came out of the 70s and the 80s, you know, actual pass and run options. Donovan McNabb in Philadelphia was another one who was good at that coming out of college. And so years, what finally, to me, what finally changed, the NFL changed and it bubbled up from college, no question. You see it in the generation that landed in the NFL in 2011 and 12 with Cam Newton, Colin Kaepernick as a as a young quarterback, an unbelievable player. Uh, and then Russell Wilson and Robert Griffin III. You've got four guys in a two-year span that came in they were all like that they were mobile they, they they could still throw they could lead they could do everything and the nfl i think finally said we are not going to take these guys and make them drop back quarterbacks we're we're going to change our offense to let them do what they do best. And from to me, from that point forward, 2011 and 12, to where we are now, you've seen a real evolution in the position. Not so much before that. Michael Vick, a little bit. But since then, a real change. And that has definitely helped the black quarterback. Uh, you know, a lot of them come out of college. They're Now, uh, what, they're, what they're playing in college is what's happening in the pros. And so, yes, as you said, they are uber prepared for it. And uh, it's... It, it's just, and as a result, a lot of times, look what we're saying, you know, three out of the first four picks in the last draft, black quarterbacks. Uh, so the, the situation is cha- it has changed and it's changing dramatically for the better. And the style of football, I think, has a lot to do with it. You know, in reading your book, it, one of the things, it didn't necessarily surprise me and made me sad was, was that it doesn't seem like quarterbacks have changed over the years or that anything happened with black quarterbacks that changed. It just seems that perceptions change. Is that, is that one of the things that, that you took out of researching the book? You are so right about that. <laughs> and, and perceptions change. And the other thing, I mean, that's changed. Yes, perceptions have changed. It's totally key. What they're capable of doing, they haven't changed at all. You know, opportunity is what is changing. This, My book, to me, is a story of opportunity. You can go back to the very first uh, modern black starting quarterback, Marlon Briscoe, okay, come plays for the Broncos five games in the late 60s. He starts. Uh, It's in some respects not much different than Lamar Jackson 50 years later. You know, uh, it's skill set that's not coming from a power five school. He was at the University of Omaha, even smaller than Lamar at Louisville. He's got a lot of talent. He can run. He can throw. 
the, you know, there's a lot of doubts about him. Uh, the skill set is a little out of keeping with what the norms are, quote unquote, in the NFL. Gets a chance as a rookie and he shines. That's the same story for Marlon Briscoe and Lamar Jackson. Okay, 50 years apart. What happens to uh, Lamar? is that the Ravens say, we like what we see. Uh, we're going to change our offense. We're going to give you, we're going to put you, make you the starter, and you're you're our guy. And in his second year, he wins the MVP award. What happened 50 years earlier to Marlon Briscoe is the Broncos said, you're never going to play quarterback again. They had quarterback meetings after the season. And so that was a fluke. All our white quarterbacks got hurt. You're out. And uh, they didn't even invite him to quarterback meetings. And he had to change team, change teams and change positions to have a career so to me that shows you that the talent as you said it's it's not a lot different than what's gone on it's 50 years apart it's about perception and opportunity you know i I don't know that reading before this book and even talking this interview that i recognize the role that philadelphia played in the steps along the way here i mean if you look at it you had randall in the 80s and early 90s with buddy saying let randall be randall he wasn't going to try to force him into the stereotypical quarterback then we draft donovan and it changes the perception he's a top pick and and he is not he while he ran he was a pocket quarterback who could run then you fast forward and and we had michael vick but it wasn't the michael vick experience it was the michael vick reclamation project and now we have the next step with the first black quarterback in the Super Bowl with Jalen Hurts here. Can you just talk about some of the quarterbacks we've seen come through here? I would say Philadelphia is, is at the right at the top of the, the, the pivot points in this story. The Eagles, it's, uh, it, it, it's great what's happened in Philadelphia over the years is uh, the, the willingness to, to not bend or to not give in to stereotypes and Certainly started with Randall. And, and actually, I, uh, I quote in the book a, a historian out of Chicago, a fellow by the name of Jack Silverstein, who, has, who, who did an unbelievable dip, deep dive into this, uh, uh, the story of black quarterbacks from a, just a numeric, the stats, a numerical perspective. How many, what teams have played, how many guys, numbers, percentages over the years of starts. And the Eagles are at the top, right at the top. And, uh, you know, he what the, some of the, the, the realizations that me that he made, the what came out of his study, his point was that what what was good for there's some franchises where it's just been very slow to happen at all for different reasons. But in the ones where they they went to a black quarterback relatively early and had success, have been much more open to going back to back, going back to black quarterbacks. The Eagles would be exhibit A. Uh, with Randall Cunningham, uh, after he played and had a had a had a great decade there, I mean that that was uh, that was no longer an issue. It we actually, was, you know, we had who's, Rodney. who's the quarterback that we want, and so they've gone back to that numerous times, and that's great. I mean, you know, there's a long legacy of of good black quarterbacks in Philadelphia, and they're all good quarterbacks. So uh, that, that's that's what's in hurts. You know, uh, goodness knows where he's going to go. He looks tremendous, and. Uh, and of course, you know, as always, uh, the, the little part of it, you wonder whether things are still going on. A second round draft pick. So uh, you wonder whether franchise quarterbacks. I mean, there's a lot in my book about draft and perceptions. And uh, so many good guys that didn't go in the first round. Dak Prescott, fourth round draft pick from the very beginning has been the man in Dallas, however many years. Uh, the stories like that are not uncommon. So, uh, but it's, you know, certainly the Eagles have been right at the top of the teams that have, uh, 
really been at the forefront of this, of, of changing the perceptions. All right. For, for those that are listening on the radio, they can't see that you're wearing a purple shirt. So uh, I'm assuming that uh, Ravens related, but but you have some Philadelphia ties yourself. You went to Penn and, and, and were lucky enough to be there during a pretty exciting period in Penn basketball. How, how did you how did you get your start and how how, how did you develop this love of passion of of telling the stories of sports well you are right uh i uh i uh, was at penn in the late 70s and it's my year class of 79 that went to the final four i was there for the daily pennsylvanian and uh with uh, we came up a little short against michigan state uh and uh, i think by about 40 points but anyway they, they they did make the final four and so great thing those are my classmates tony price and and all those guys and so that was a great experience for me. I had a great time, needless to say. It was a wonderful school, the Daily Pennsylvanian. Uh, I worked with Rich Hoffman, who wrote uh, columns for forever in Philadelphia. And there's a bunch of us out and about do, still doing stuff. So that was a great experience for me. And, you know, I got into journalism uh, after that uh, in Dallas, which is my hometown. Uh, and uh, so I was five years at the Dallas Times-Herald. And then I came to Baltimore and uh they hired me at the Baltimore Sun. I was there for years uh, and, uh, you know, for 27 years, I believe it was, wrote thousands of columns. And and along the way, I started writing books. I just enjoyed that. I, I, I took that on as a challenge. Uh, my mother owned a bookstore growing up. I, uh, I was a reader. I, I was an English major. I wanted to write books. So uh, really have had two rails of writing for a number of years. This is my 11th book. And so I've stayed at it, writing a lot of sports history, narrative nonfiction, and uh, I've been very fortunate. There's a lot of people that write. It's hard to get good contracts, good publishers, and yeah, get people to notice. So I don't take it for granted. I'm always pleased when anyone wants to talk to me about these books because, uh, you know, that's uh, it's an honor, really, you know, to put something out there and have people pay attention to it. Well, you, you, you've covered so many different sports you've covered world series you've covered you know kentucky derbies things like that where does going to a basketball game at the palestra rank oh man right at the top the the uh, the uh the palestra in its heyday uh i was a little kid from dallas texas that came up to philadelphia in 1975 the fall of 1975 the first big five doubleheader at the palestra i didn't even know what was going on it was Penn against somebody, and then it was Villanova and St. Joe's in the nightcap. And the place was packed. And, and of course, a great rivalry in the Big Five, the, those two. And it was just madness in, in the palestra and just two hours of screaming. I can't remember the game. I just remember the crowd. And I thought, this is like the most amazing thing I've ever seen that, uh, you know, it was just so intense and passionate. And, uh, uh, you know, the Palestra uh, was, uh, you know, it was just an, an incredible historic place uh, to watch a basketball game. The fact that they're still playing there was incredibly cool. And, uh, you know, I have many memories of some great games uh, that, that Penn played there against some really, really good teams. And so uh, I, I just think it's a fan. I, I mean, Years later, I made sure my son, sports loving, when he was in high school, I said, one night I packed him in the car and said, we're going up, we're going to drive up to Philadelphia, we're going to see Penn play Temple. And he looked at me, I said, we're going to do it. And uh, so he, we sat behind one of the baskets, he, he loved every minute of it. I mean, it really is quite the experience. 
We're glad that Philadelphia can prepare you so well for this journey, telling all of these different stories. Our listeners can purchase the book, Rocket Men, the Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football, anywhere books are sold. John, so great to get some time with you to talk about this continuing journey. Uh, my pleasure. I loved it. Thanks very much. I hear about the journey of these quarterbacks. And, and like I said, when I asked him the question, I don't know that I realized the role that Philadelphia played, but as we have just two minutes left in the show, we get to watch one of those quarterbacks help continue to transform the position and the perception with Jalen Hurts. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things. Look, it's a great book. People really should pick it up. It's it's just, it's a great story, but it's also a sad story because that, like I said, the theme that I took out of it was the, the wrong people were making decisions. It wasn't, Are the, it wasn't right people the, making the black quarterback. It, it's often perception that matters more than reality. And the reality was there were the skilled players and, and they were kept from being able to perform because of perceptions of closed-minded men. You know, I didn't get to ask him, uh, there's still very few backup black quarterbacks. So there still Mm -hmm. is progress that they need to make for the black quarterback. And his follow-up book can be, um, where are the black coaches in the NFL? So I don't know that that structure has completely changed to allow for the elevation of all people based on their merit. Yeah, but there's there's, there's still this perception out there that's wrong. I mean, let's face it. We have Lamar Alexander, who nobody wanted to be a quarterback. And, And Jalen Hurts, was anybody when the Eagles ja- drafted Jalen Hurts. Did anybody think Jalen Hurts Lamar Jackson. was going to be this kind of quarterback? And the fact was, he was this kind of quarterback and he was this kind of leader. That's the thing that comes out of this, is that all of the, the great quarterbacks, regardless of their skin color, are leaders. I think you you said it to him, and I'll take the last word this week. They've been that all along. Mm-hmm. It just They just weren't given the opportunity. Thanks yeah. so much for joining us this week. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.